morning church family. I guess everybody knows what tonight is. Everybody know what tonight is? Yeah, it, it, uh, game five of the World Series. Yes, that's exactly right. I know that's what you were thinking. Game five of the World Series. Can't we all be Braves fans tonight? Uh, as they close us out, I've had more people come to me and say, Preacher, I'm a little tired. I stayed up last night. I've been staying up watching these games right here. We know that the Braves are in the World Series, especially if you were here for our fantastic fall festival this last Friday night because you saw a lot of people dressed up as Braves players. So you had a lot of Aussie Albies walking around with their jerseys on. You had a lot of Freddie Freeman jerseys. You had a lot of Austin Raleigh jerseys. And what we're watching right now is really going to impact a lot of young boys and a lot of young girls on the baseball field and the softball field because their, their batting stances are going to change. The way Dansby Swanson plays shortstop is going to, to ultimately be emulated by a lot of young children that are watching these games right now because we, we imitate those that we look up to. Uh, this is true in baseball. This is true in art. This is true in music. This is true in educational pursuits that, that people rub off on us. And when we get close to them in close proximity to them, they shape us and they mold us in a lot of ways. Now, that's not just true in life. It's also true spiritually. But don't just take my word for it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi in the third chapter, he talks about the importance of imitation, the importance of emulation. Uh, notice with me, starting in verse 17, Paul's words to the church at Philippi, Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. Notice what Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Three glorious truths that I want you to hold on to this morning from these verses of Scripture here in Philippians chapter 3. I want you to hear Paul's call to each and every one of us to imitate the lives of the faithful. Notice again in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. I mean, this sounds fairly egotistical, doesn't it? This sounds as if Paul is saying, look at me as I place myself on a pedestal of emulation. I'm the one to follow. But you, you'll misunderstand Paul if you read him out of context. He's already, in, in the preceding verses here in Philippians chapter 3, already told the church at Philippi, I've not already arrived. I'm not perfect. I've not perfectly obtained the resurrection of the dead. Paul says in the previous verses that we have before verse 17 that, that Paul is not spiritually arrived. So he's not setting himself as this model of perfection. Rather, he is setting himself as one who is forgetting what is behind him and pressing forward to what is ahead. He has his mind and his eyes and his heart set on the call of God in Christ Jesus, that upward call and so is Paul perfect? The answer is no, but is Paul progressing forward? The answer is yes. 
And he tells us here the importance of mentorship. But notice also in the pronouns of verse 17 that Paul is not just setting himself up for people to trace the contours of his life. But notice that that pronoun at the end of verse 17 is a plural pronoun. He says, join us in imitator. He says, walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul's hearkening back to the end of Philippians chapter 2, where he, he told us of two other fellow co-workers of the gospel, Epaphroditus and Timothy, that he draws here to say that there is an importance of, of flesh and blood in our following of Jesus. There is an importance of, of getting in close proximity to those who walk with Jesus and who can rub off on us as, as we seek to be found faithful as followers of him. We need human examples. When I was in the third grade, I went through a drawing phase. And the way I remember this was is that at Northside Elementary School in our library, there was a a how-to-draw book, this big book in my memory that had hundreds of, of the cartoon characters that you would see when I was a kid on television, and it gave you step-by-step instructions of how you could draw them. Now listen, I wasn't interested in the step-by-step instructions. I, I wasn't interested in starting with the head and, and moving to the body. You know what I was interested in? I was, I was just interested in finding a bright light and getting a blank sheet of paper and going to the completed final product and tracing the contours. That's what I was interested in. Now, all of us here need to be reminded that that we need to trace the contours of women and men who love Jesus and they're a few miles down the road past us and following him. We need flesh and blood to be in proximity to. We need men and women who invest in in the next generation and who we are, are open to be invested in. We all need people to rub off on us flesh and blood examples of faithfulness in the workplace, at school faithfulness in their professions, faithfulness in their neighborhood, faithful in, on, on their knees in prayer, faithful to the Word of God. We need those human tangible examples in our life. I can look back over my own life, and in the rearview mirror, I, I, sometimes I hear people bemoaning the fact that, oh, I didn't have anybody that was investing in me. Sometimes people that grow up in the church, and, and I think to myself, mm, I'm not really sure about that. I never in my life had someone come to me and say, David Eldridge, this is a 16-step program of mentor and sh- uh, mentorship that I'm inviting you into. Will you sign on the dotted line? No one ever told me that. But I can look back and see men and women who invested in my life, who they let me get close enough to them that the Christ in them rubbed off on me and pointed my life to Jesus. Eighth grade, football coach, history professor, or history teacher, he was a professor, I guess, and uh, Coach Greg Stegall. I can still remember the difference that I saw in, in the way that he treated people in the classroom, the way that he treated people and his language on the football field, and he let me get close enough to him, and there was something different about him. I had a youth pastor, Harvey Ellis, from 13 to 18, who just was just this wonderful example. I, I saw a person who loved the Word of God and a person who loved students, and he let me get close enough to him so the Christ in him rubbed off on me. 
I remember when Danielle and I got married and we were going to seminary and we were praying about places to apply and places to attend. And, and we went to uh, Sanford University at Beeson Divinity School. And you know why I did that? Because there was a professor that I really wanted to study with. And he's preached here many times, Dr. Robert Smith. And for three years there, one of the great gifts of my life was to be able to get close to him. So the Christ in him could, could rub off on me and the, the love for the word of God and the love for the people of God and this infectious joy. I was able to see really close. And I, I look back in the rearview mirror of my life and I say, God, thank you. Thank you for those Pauls and those Timothys and those Epaphroditus that were in my life that you allowed to intersect. And you look back in the rearview rear mirror of your life and you know who's there? They're, they're life group teachers. Their moms and their dads, their brothers and their sisters. There may be some youth pastors that are scattered there. It might be a teacher, a professor, it might be a co-worker, a friend who God has allowed through his sovereign providence to intersect with your life and you're able to, to get close enough to them that the Christ in them rubbed off on you and, and pointed you toward Jesus. Now we need to be those kinds of people, don't we? We need to give room for people to get close enough to us, or is the prerequisite for that perfection? And the answer is no. All of us who are followers of him, we, we are called to invest in that next generation. We're called to invest not with just educational pursuits, but that the, the reality of life, to be able to allow people to see what it means to follow Jesus as parents, to be able to see what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of stressful situations, or what it means to follow Jesus in, in real-life conflict, we need to be able to trace the contours of what that looks like. So Paul says here, guess what? Each and every one of us, the followers of Jesus, we need to imitate the lives of the faithful. But also, notice that he says on the flip side, there's some lives that are not worthy of you tracing. There, there's some lives that you need to avoid uh, following their path because ultimately we need to beware of the missteps of the unfaithful. Verses 18 through 19 goes in a, a different direction here, which is the, the tales of the heads of verse 17. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So these are people that the Philippian believers would have known about. These are people that Paul was in contact with. He doesn't just uh, uh, silo them off in this harsh way. He, he does it with tears. So there's an, there's an intimacy that he has. He, he grieves that they're not following Jesus as he would desire for them. They, they walk as enemies of Christ. And then we have this litany of description. Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Who in the world is Paul talking about? It's a good question. It's uh, a question that stumped many people as they walked through this. We have a, a couple of people, a couple of groups that we could think. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he has already given us a warning to watch out for the evildoers, watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Now, we know in the beginning of chapter 3 here that the group that he's talking about is a group that is adding to the gospel. They're a group that say, you know, it's not enough for you to place your faith in Jesus alone, through his grace alone, through faith alone. You've got to add, you've got to add circumcision. You've got to add the ceremonial laws of, of the Jewish faith. So to become a Christian, you've got to become a faithful Jew plus put your faith in Jesus. 
So he says, for any, any group that is adding to the gospel, if it's Jesus plus, be wary. But it seems as if this group here isn't doing that. Actually, it seems as if this group is, is pulling away from a call to obedience, a call to holiness. It seems as if this group is a group that's subtracting from a desire to follow Jesus faithfully. You know, Paul would ask the question in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, what shall we say then? You see it on the screen. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And it seems as if this group answers that question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And they answer the question, well, of course, yes. Of course. The blood of Christ covers your sin. So if it feels good, it looks good. If you're appealed to it, then go with it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. By no means are we to follow this path. This is a group that Diedrich Bonhoeffer decades ago would talk about a group that, that, that uh, operates under this umbrella of cheap grace. Where it is salvation without repentance. Where it is discipleship without confession. Where it's where we desire to receive the forgiveness of God, but we don't desire to follow him faithfully. And it seems as if this is the group that Paul is talking about here. Now, Paul could have, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given us all the details, but one of the reasons that we find this elusive is because the people that he's talking about, they know exactly who Paul's talking about here. So these descriptions here that seem sort of remote from us, they're in his destruction. Well, if they're not followers of Jesus, then there's a judgment because they've not placed their faith in him. If they follow Jesus, they're in his destruction. Well, it could mean the discipline of God here, the consequences. Their God is their belly. Uh, in that first century world, there was this sense of where everything was driven by your, your visceral uh, passions. And, and a, a person who just gives themselves to that ultimately will lead to a spiritually deadened road. That's true then and it's true now. So these are people that have no restraint. These are people who do not repent of sin. These are people, notice again, their glory is in their shame. It very well may be that they, they take what God condemns as shameful. God condemns as sin and ultimately parades it in the public as, as something that is to be celebrated. Their mind is set on earthly things. These are, these are worldly people, Christian or non-Christian. These are people that we are not to emulate. These are people we are not to trace. That might be a timely word to us. It might be a timely word to us, even the way we receive this word, because we don't know all the details of who these people are, which might be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the best thing, because it reminds us that there's a little bit of all of us in these descriptions. But if you're a follower of Jesus here, you're a sinner saved by grace. And these descriptions can become real in your life. You know, they become real when, when you allow sin to be really cozy and comfortable in your life. Do you understand this about sin? That if you're a follower of Jesus, sin is a squatter in the house of your soul, and that God calls you to evict it by the power of the Holy Spirit? But there can be a temptation for each of us that are here to, to become really cozy and really comfortable with sin, where we find ourselves very consistently rationalizing our sin, justifying our sin, 
explaining away our sin, downplaying it, becoming cozy and comfortable as we're entertained by what God calls us to confess and repent. If you find yourself traveling down that road, understand what Paul says, you're headed to a dead end spiritually. Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, through 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So notice that Paul says to imitate the lives of the faithful, verse 17. Notice in this passage that Paul tells us to beware of the missteps of the unfaithful in verses 18 through 19. Now finally, he lifts our countenance. Now he's just said there's certain people whose minds are set on earthly things. Don't trace the contours of their life. Actually, he lifts our gaze as Christians from the earthly that is around us to our eternal prize that is ahead of us. Notice that he calls us to look forward to the prize ahead. Verse 20, again, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a powerful passage. It's a great reminder that our citizenship as, as followers of Jesus is a dual citizenship. We, we have an earthly citizenship. We're, we're citizens, uh, most of us here, the United States of America, but we have, we have a greater allegiance than our earthly citizenship, which is an eternal allegiance and an eternal citizenship. Now, that, this was immensely countercultural in the time that Paul was writing and, and to the people that he was writing to. He was writing to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. It was a place that had tremendous pride in their Roman citizenship. Uh, former military men who retired oftentimes were, were positioned and stationed in Philippi. All of the rights of a Roman citizen were able to, to be achieved and received there in this Philippian colony here. So when people were asked, where are you from? And you're asking someone from Philippi, they have no hesitation. They, they hold out their chest and they say, well, I am from Philippi. There, there's, there's no being humble about this. This is a place of, of tremendous civic pride. But it's also a place where their, their earthly citizenship, if you're a follower of Jesus, collides with their eternal citizenship because the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, he takes upon himself this deification. He actually walks around and calls himself the Savior. He actually walks around and he asks people and demands of people to worship him as the Savior of the world. You talk about over-promising and under-delivering. I mean, that, this is Caesar Augustus in, a, in, in, in this moment here. This emperor, he, he says, if you got problems... I'm going to solve them. If you need rescue from trouble, I'm going to rescue for you from trouble. If you need protection from danger, that's me. And what Paul is saying is, hold on here. We're putting, we're putting too much emphasis upon our earthly citizenship, not reminding ourselves and being reminded that there's only one who truly delivers us and can truly rescue us. And you know who that is? It is the promised Savior, Jesus himself. And we need to be reminded of this on, on several fronts, that your hope and my hope as followers of Jesus, in the midst of any challenge that comes your way, when you're backed into a corner, that, that our hope isn't solely 
are securely found in, in the person who occupies 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's just not the case 2,000 years ago, and it's not the case now. Ultimately, our hope rests not in a Savior that we look to on Capitol Hill, but a Savior that would be crucified on a hill for your sins and my sins. This is our hope because our eternal citizenship is in heaven. Now, what happens here on earth is is vitally important. What happens here on earth is is a gift to us. It's grace to us every day that we have. But we must be reminded that we are citizens of a greater kingdom, a, a heavenly kingdom. We all have a permanent address. Danielle and I have been married for 22 years in December, and we're thinking back, and I might be a little off on this, but I think we've had 12 different addresses in 22 years. Uh, we got married and moved from schools and schools, and, and so we have 12 different places. So we've had forwarding addresses at times as we've moved from the place that we live to the next place. There was a time where we lived in Mobile off of Schillinger Road for about eight or nine months while we were rebuilding our house that had been destroyed during Katrina there. And it was one of the first times where I'd had that place where you'd go to the doctor's office or you'd be filling something out for school, and they would have an address, and you would put your address that you were living in, but under it, they had permanent address. And, and in that that moment, I had to, had to remind myself that, that our temporary address was there in Mobile, but our permanent address was where the church was and where the house was that we were rebuilding here. And so while we were living, we were really living just as sojourners in Mobile because our true home was there back on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And for all of us that are here, you need to be reminded that you have a temporary address here on earth, but there is a permanent address that you have in heaven. And one day, one day you will receive, when Jesus comes back for you in death, or he comes back for you in his second coming here, we will receive the very prize that awaits us in the coming attractions that Paul writes about here in verse 21. It's a just a little glimpse when he says, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. About two weeks ago, I, along with our two older boys, went to a movie in a theater. We, we've not done that in a long time. We've you know, streamed things at the house, but we've not gone in the vehicle and walked into the movie theater and I had forgotten you know it's been a while since I sat down and we had our uh, $13.50 drink there beside I forgot how expensive it was number one <laughs> number two I forgot that the time that we were supposed to be there has 28 minutes of coming attractions all of these previews now, you know this about coming attractions, you know this about previews, that they're, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds that give you just a glimpse of the movie that's going to be released six months from now. It just whets your appetite. You can get some of the contours of the story, some of the main characters, a little bit of a preview into the plot line to the story, but the whole movie, well, that, you're going to see that six months from now. You just have a preview of the coming attraction here. And so Paul, in verse 21 here, he talks about what awaits us in our permanent address of the new heaven and the new earth. And what awaits us is this glorious resurrection body where we will be transformed from our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, there are a whole lot of speculation and questions that you might have about this resurrection body. 
There are all kinds of rabbits to chase as we come to what Paul talks about. But Paul says, no, I got, I got two minutes and 30 seconds here. I'm, I'm not giving you the full movie of what awaits you in your permanent address. I, I give you only a glimpse of what this So there's endless speculation. You might ask, well, how old am I going to be in my resurrection body? I don't know the answer to that. How tall am I going to be? I don't know the answer to that. What version of me? Hopefully, hopefully it's an upgrade, right? It is going to be an upgrade. Some people are thinking, am I, going to be a fa- am I going to be the fashion model version of myself? I've had people talk about sort of their resurrection bodies in Marvel-like, DC comic-like questions. Am I going to be able to fly? Am I going to have x-ray vision? Now, Paul doesn't talk about any of these things here. But I tell you, he talks about the main thing. He doesn't tell us everything that we might be curious about when we turn our attention to the the glorious promise of our resurrection bodies, but he tells us everything that we need to know about it. I'll tell you what he tells us, we're going to trade in, we're going to trade up. That we're going to be like him in his glorious body. There's just this wonderful point in Jesus' life where he's experienced the crucifixion upon the cross, he's raised from the dead, And he walks with the disciples in that little interlude before the crescendo of the ascension. And there's continuity and discontinuity. At times, the disciples cannot recognize him. At times, they do recognize him. At times that he's been with people, they think he's a gardener, but he's actually Jesus in this moment here. There are times, though, of of tremendous continuity. He's eating with the disciples. He walks with the disciples. But at other times, he he just shows up in their midst. He leaves in a moment. He says to a skeptical Thomas, come and and feel my wounds. If you do not believe that that I've been raised, you with your own finger, put it here in my scars. There's continuity, but there's also discontinuities. He's in a new resurrected body. And and what Paul tells us is, is this is a preview of coming attractions for each and every one of you that have the permanent address as a citizen of, of a heavenly kingdom. I don't know all the details, but this I know. You're trading in all the aches of your earthly home for the adoration of your eternal home. I don't know everything about it, but you're trading in pains and you're trading up for eternal praises. I don't know everything about it, but you're trading in all the sadness and confusion of this earth, and, and you're trading up for sin once and forevermore to be silenced for an eternity. I don't know everything about it, but you're trading in every disease, and you're trading up for eternal doxology, because you will be like him. Now, we live in a day and age where we need to take uh, uh, stock of this, this might be the first generation that thinks of heaven and, and, and really is a little bit disappointed about thinking ahead of it. There, there's a whole generation of people that they had all of these songs in, in the heavenly hymnals that talked of heaven because there was this tremendous anticipation. We live in a day and age that tries to make this earth into heaven. And it's not your home. It's not your home. I'm here to remind you that the best is yet to come. So maybe you're here and everything is sunny in your life. And everything is great. And everything is awesome. And everything is kicking on all cylinders. I'm here to tell you the best is yet to come. 
And maybe you're here today and life's been a little bit bumpy this last week or this last month or this last year. And there's been a lot of bouts of disappointment and disease seems as if it has the upward hand. I am here to remind you, my friend, the best is yet to come. So no matter where you are, as you've walked into the sanctuary, you have something and someone to look forward to because I remind you, the best is yet to come. Amen? Let us pray.